Hi, I'm Dan Fermat, and welcome to Axios Recap, where we dig into one big story. Today's Tuesday, May 4th. Stocks are down, the U.S. refugee admissions cap is up, and we're focused on vaccinating America's kids. Over 44% of all Americans have now received at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine, with the CDC saying that nearly 32% are fully vaccinated. But almost none of them are below 16 years old because there isn't yet an approved vaccine for kids or younger teens. Now, some of that may change next week, with the FDA expected to provide Pfizer with emergency use authorization for those as young as 12. So again, everyone 12 to 15 years old. Pfizer's also in the clinic for even younger kids, all the way down to babies, while Moderna has done some under-16 work, but it hasn't yet applied for approval. Why all of this matters is the number of COVID cases among kids is on the rise, according to the American Academy of Pediatrics. There were more than 71,000 cases last week, which represents a 4% increase over the past two weeks. And obviously, as the overall number of adult cases falls because of vaccinations, kids are representing an even higher percentage of the overall caseload, 22.4% as of last check. Now, to be sure, kids don't generally get as sick from COVID as adults do, although there have been some pretty severe exceptions. What kids can do, though, is transmit the virus to other kids and to adults. And as we've discussed before, mutations or variants are created via human-to-human transmission. So the more kids who transmit the virus to somebody else, the more potential for a new variant to emerge, including one that could evade vaccines entirely, at which point we'd be back to square one. So today we wanted to speak with drug discovery researcher Derek Lowe about COVID-19 vaccines in kids, why they're important, how the development and testing process is different from adults, and if we'll have enough supply once the pool of eligible patients expands. That conversation in 15 seconds. We're joined now by Derek Lowe, a longtime drug discovery researcher and the author of the In the Pipeline blog. So, Derek, let's start here. Do you believe that if a vaccine is available and approved for kids, that kids need to be vaccinated? Overall, yeah, I think so. Now, the the risk of coronavirus infection in younger people is, of course, lower. We've seen that for sure, and the risk in older people is higher, which is why we started with them first. But the kids themselves can serve as a reservoir of coronavirus in humans. They can pass it on to others. And if it sits in them for some time, we could see coronavirus mutations occurring in the kids and then passing that on to the rest of the population. Did the fact that the research on kids and transmissibility has changed a lot? There's been kind of a lot of conflicting studies on that. Do you think that's a reason why getting kids into the clinic has taken a little bit longer? I think so. And of course, it's always more complicated as you go into children in a clinical trial. Obviously, they are we're, you're concerned about them because there's a lot of development going on with them. And you want to tiptoe in pretty carefully. I mean, with other vaccines, this is a process that's taken much longer, like when you're doing infant vaccinations. But in this case, we started with adults and we're working our way back down, which is a little bit different than usual. If I'm 18 or if I'm 80, I get the same vaccine, whether it be from Pfizer or Moderna, same dosage, same formulation. But am I correct in saying it's different, say, if you're 10 to 16? Yeah, yeah. One of the things is just sheer body size, body weight and mass. Like a lot of dosages, you have to adjust for that. So that's one of the things that they're looking at as they go into younger and younger children is to make sure that you're not giving more than you need. 
for one, you'd be wasting vaccine and you could be, you know, hitting the body harder than it needs to be hit. On the weight thing, though, I'm curious if I'm a 100 pound adult or 100 and I'm a 200 pound adult, I get the same vaccine dose, correct? Yeah, that's true. That's true. We haven't, you know, made an adjustment that fine. But with children, you're in really, especially as they go younger, you're really in a range that an adult is not going to hit for the most part. And you've also got the worries about the fact that, you know, children are growing. They're developing all the time. So you need to make sure that there's nothing weird going on. So you don't want to hit them harder than you need to. What do we know in terms of kind of best practices from past vaccine trials on kids that researchers now are probably paying close attention to? Yeah, most of it is just the the dosing levels. You know, you want to you want to make sure you're giving people immunity, but not giving them a lot more of a kick in the immune system than they need to have. You know, and, and people are always worried about that with vaccines. But this one, is, as I say, it's a little bit different because we're starting in adults and working our way back down to the younger kids, which is really not that common a situation. Sometimes we've done that, but you have a lot of vaccines that are, for example, like shingles, which are only going to be given you know, to adults. And you have the childhood and infant vaccinations, which are only given to in a pediatric setting. So this is kind of a strange one. Derek, I remember back in the fall that the Pfizer and Moderna executives talked a little bit about how they were able to move a little faster in their phase three trials because there was so much COVID in the United States. You do need a certain level of disease to figure out if a vaccine works. We are seeing cases rise among kids now. Does that unfortunate reality mean that these trials might actually progress a bit quicker than they otherwise would? Yeah, it it unfortunately does. It, it really does. And fortunately, the consequences of COVID infection in the children is not as bad, but we are seeing more cases than we were. Some of that is just via proportion because we're seeing fewer cases in older adults, which is just solid good news all the way around. But yeah, that is exactly what it means. These trials are designed to look for a particular number of events. And the faster you get to that number of events, the faster the data come in. You said at the beginning of this that you do think it's important that kids get vaccinated if there's a a safe and and available vaccine. Talk to me a little bit about what you think the messaging is going to be like here. We already have a lot of adults who don't want to get it. Kids, it's another level, even for some parents maybe, who have willingly got it for themselves. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it is. And you, you can think back to the controversies over other vaccines, you know, that are specifically designed to be given to kids. But I think that the fact that the vaccine rollout has gone as well as it has, that we've seen so few side effects, is going to help some. And just watching the coronavirus numbers come down as vaccination has been rolled out, it's really been a great thing. Of course, the flip side of that is some people may look at the numbers and say, well, I don't have to worry about this so much anymore. Things are coming down. You hope that that's true. That would be nice. But I'd rather not take the chance on that because we are going to really, really look like idiots if we allow a nasty vaccine evading mutation to pick up in the population. That's the nightmare. Based on where things are in the pipeline right now, is it reasonable to think that a vaccine for grade school age kids is going to be available by the time school starts at the end of August, beginning of September? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I think I think so. I think it's going to be maybe cutting it close, but I think that's the goal is to get something down to that level by then because everyone's well aware of the school calendar 
And the summertime, with the warmer weather and more outdoor activity, we always expected cases to come down. It's the perfect time to really knock this thing out. So I know that the companies involved are shooting for that, and I think they can make it. The flip side of that could be a supply question or issue, right? If vaccines do become available to kids, say, in August or maybe even the end of July, should there be any concerns about the U.S. supply, given that we are hearing more and more that we, we being adults, might need a booster next year? Yeah, the booster is going to be a different beast than the existing supply. So it'll come down to whether or not you have to switch everyone over to a booster. And that is still way up in the air. Right now, I think everyone's hoping that we're not going to have to do that. The companies involved are preparing for that and getting ready for the worst case because we wouldn't want to be caught flat-footed. But vaccine supply overall is really doing so much better right now. So I think we're going to be able to make this without having a crunch. But there is a worst-case scenario. Let's hope we don't see it. Derek, final question for you. We saw when the J&J vaccine got halted a a couple weeks ago and then restarted that there was a very small handful of number of people who had reported blood clots. One woman, I believe just one woman, died from it. And the general reaction seemed to be from the medical community, it's obviously horrible what happened with that woman, but it's, it's one out of millions. It's not a reason to stop this. When it comes to young kids, is the bar even higher? In other words, if, if something horrible happened to just one child, does that potentially create massive vaccine hesitancy? Yes, I'm sure it would. And that's, that's really the, the reason why you, you go in with what they call dose de-escalation as you're trying to get to the lowest dose that is really effective. It's been good, though, that the mRNA vaccines themselves have been showing no evidence of the blood clotting problem. Their rollout of those has been remarkably safe. I've been really happy with that. So I think that's going to be the way that we do it. But you're absolutely right. If there is a really bad adverse event in the rollout of the childhood vaccinations, I think that's going to lead to a lot of hesitancy. You can you can understand why. Well, I can say that my 10-year-old keeps asking when she's allowed to get the vaccine, so, <laughs> so she, she apparently won't be one of them. Uh, Derek Lowe, who writes the In the Pipeline blog, thank you so much for joining us. Glad to. Thanks for having me. Welcome back. What we're watching today is fallout from news that Bill and Melinda Gates are divorcing after 27 years of marriage. Now, to be clear, we're not interested in the reasons for the divorce itself. Those are private matters for two public people. Instead, we're interested in what it means for the former couple's philanthropic efforts, because the Gateses have been giving away around $5 billion each year, with a particular focus on public health, education, and climate change. In a statement, the pair said they will continue to co-chair the $50 billion nonprofit foundation that bears their names, with no organizational changes planned. And it's important to note, they don't actually own the foundation. It's a charitable trust, and their donations to it are irrevocable. In other words, they can end their marriage, but they can't end their joint commitment to the foundation. But obviously, a divorce complicates matters. And there are also all sorts of public interest issues outside of the foundation. The Gateses, for example, are the country's largest private owners of farmland. And each of them have separate investment firms focused on different sociopolitical goals. The bottom line here is that divorce is always an earthquake for the people involved. This one, though, could send tremors much, much further. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Naomi Shaven, Sabina Singani, and Alex Sugiara. Please be sure to leave us a review. And if you're not already subscribing or following the podcast, please do so. Have a great National Teacher Appreciation Day. Thank you to Ms. Tev and Mr. Finneran. We'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.